0: Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive.
1: All right. Welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Today, we're going to be doing a little bit of a different conversation for you because we love being able to show, not just tell you about things. And so today is going to be really more of a show and tell. We're going to be walking you through what Lucas and I are doing that Bruce is aware of and Bruce is part of and and watching and and being uh, facilitating a piece of this as well, but how we're building our family bank. And so part of the reason why we want to have this conversation with you is that we Think that it's probably really beneficial for you to understand not just that we sound like we're talking about infinite banking on a regular basis and we sound like we think it's great for you, but we want to show you that we believe in this so much that we're doing it personally in our own life. And we're going to show you the reasons why and what that's looking like in our own life. This is probably going to answer certain kinds of questions for you. You might be saying, How do I know when I should add another whole life insurance policy? or do I have enough death benefit? How do I make sure I have enough death benefit? What does it mean to continue building a family banking system if you already have a policy in place and you're now in a different financial position? And how do you continue thinking long-term with this idea of using infinite banking in your family, not just for yourself in the next few years, but also going forward in future generations? And so certainly we're not forward in future generations, right? I mean, we we are still here. We're the beginners of our family banking system, Lucas and I, but we have a vision for multiple generations and how they can continue to use what we're beginning and starting now. So we're going to take you behind the scenes and you can see what we're doing in real time. We're going to show you a brand new policy that we just started in our family bank. And we're going to show you how the cash value is growing, what the cash value looks like, what the death benefit looks like, and really just be able to show you how we're securing capital in our family and how you can do exactly the same thing. So thank you, Lucas, for joining me for this conversation today. And thank you, Bruce, for being on this show and just helping people to understand the why.
2: Thank you. Actually, correction, we have have added two policies.
1: Yes, that is true. So let's say... The reason why I said one is because I was thinking just of the whole life piece, which is kind of more of the infinite banking side. We've also added another term policy. So we're going to explain all of that um, before we kind of dive into the nuts and bolts of what we're doing in our family banking system. Honey, can you just share a little bit of our vision for, you know, what are the principles behind our financial choices that Really are guiding us rather than just saying, Well, here's the right product and here's the right, you know, technical aspects and here's the right um levers and mechanisms and here's the right features inside of a life insurance policy. Let's really kind of go back to the why. What are the principles that are really leading us to make these financial choices to build a family bank in the first place?
2: Yes, yeah, so we always say principles first, strategy second. And so the first one is uh, the idea of net investable income, and that means if you think of saving your income, uh, a percentage of your income uh, versus a set amount. So then that the idea isn't that you're just saving. A lot of people think of saving investing as two completely separate concepts, but the idea that you're saving a pool of capital for opportunities. So it becomes you think of that income that's coming in, the percentage that you set aside savings is really investable income you're just not immediately spending it or just sitting there for the sake of just sitting there but you're then looking for the right opportunity so the idea is that it's an entire system
1: just before we dive into the whole system um the idea that we're focused on increasing net investable income bruce can you share just from your perspective where you see this being a benefit or something that a family really can focus on looking at this idea of increasing savings and the ability to have money to invest?
3: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not, it's, it's really not any different. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's really not any different than if you store the money in their bank or under your mattress or wherever you store the money. Um, you're storing it for a, a reason or a purpose. And if you want to try to maximize your wealth, you what you really are looking for is what to do to keep that money in motion. Now, the problem I see a, a lot of times is is people are just constantly taking their money and putting it into investments right away without any kind of sense of, is this something that I really understand? Is this something that re- I really can get behind? Is this something that... Um, is sticking to the principle of my investing and also the principles of safety, liquidity, and growth. Because uh, some some investments are really good as far as growth, but they have limited liquidity. They have limited safety. Some investments have more liquidity, but they don't have as much growth. So you have to look at all those kind of things. So I would encourage everybody to to actually have an, an investable philosophy in other words, invest in things that you know and are passionate about so that you can recognize when an opportunity comes up. Many of the people, the uber wealthy that have family offices, that's, what, that's their philosophy. Like, I'm only going to invest in manufacturing. I'm only going to invest in multifamily apartment complexes. I'm only going to invest in dental practices, so on and so forth. So have your philosophy about that. Well, you need a place to store money until those particular opportunities come, for whatever criteria you might may have. And it just so happens that you could do it, like I said, in a bank, or you could do it under your mattress. But if you can do it in specially designed whole life insurance contracts, you actually get what we've always talked about: is you get an opportunity to earn money in two different places at the same time. Many many people have heard in our, in our episodes talking about. You know, you can do a similar thing with a home equity line of credit using the investable equity in your home. The difference is you don't have any guarantees with your home, and mm-hmm. and the bank controls the payment terms of the home equity line. That where you control the payment terms back into your own uh, insurance contract. So, I think those are the principles that you should look at when you're looking at having net investable assets and what and what you should be doing with those.
1: Yeah, which is really the reason why we've built into our own financial philosophy, exactly what Lucas is saying. Our priority is not saying, how do we put this these dollars into investments as quickly as possible? We're saying, how do we build a system? What is our system? What is our philosophy? And our philosophy is to continue that savings habit and that savings discipline and to always be saving. And as we're saving, we're building what we call an emergency opportunity fund, which at this point, I mean the emergency is covered. We're we're saying, how do we continue building this opportunity fund so that we have investable capital? So that when we deploy that capital, we are using those principles of saying, how do we invest in what we know and what we control? Not just what's the best fad investment today? And oh no, that was a bad idea because you know the masses were going towards it and now the masses have turned and the economy has turned and, Oh, now I guess that was a bad decision. Let's pull the money out and put it in a different investment. We're saying instead we're building a foundation with a system of continuing to save and pay ourselves first. And this is how we're choosing to do it. So.
3: Yeah, Rachel, one other, one last thing on that uh, just spurred my um, thought on that is all, all, also you know, if you have 20, if you build up 2,500 and want to invest it like right now, you often don't get economies of scale on that. And an example of that would be even in the, in the corporate bond market, that life insurance, uh, life insurance companies actually invest in. When you have larger sums of money, it's kind of like the Costco or the Sam's effect, you can actually get better deals with larger sums of money. So with corporate, with corporate bonds, Insurance companies can go out to corporations and say, Hey, we'll give you a hundred million dollars for this particular bond, but we want this rate. If they only come to the table with now, I know this is silly when we're talking about our own personal family bank, but if they only come to the, with uh, ten million dollars, then the corporation's gonna say, Well, we're gonna lower the rate because we think we can shop it out with somebody else to get it ten million, because ten million isn't that hard to actually raise for a corporation, where $100 is a lot harder. So it's the same thing happens with your own net investable assets. If you have a bigger sum, you can often negotiate, I'm going to pay in this in cash for this investment and thus get a, a lower price because that person doesn't have to worry about getting more investment dollars from other places. So that's another reason why to build up a larger amount before you invest.
1: Yeah. I love, I love that you shared that. And I think that's why it's not a bad thing to continue saving. Even if you don't have an asset to deploy that into right away, continue building your, uh, your, your war chest, your reserves, your investable capital, and you will be in a much stronger position.
2: So and I want to step back because the, I go back to the word net investable income. So the focus, the reason I say net investable income is even before investing, before saving, the focus is on increasing your income. Because if you're saving as a percentage, so as your income increases, the amount you're then setting aside on a consistent basis is growing. And so that then allows you to accelerate your income. If you're focusing on uh, income increasing or cash flowing assets, uh, your the object of not being networked, the object of being Increasing the cash flow that's consistently coming in. so that's why I, and then zooming out and saying it's a cash flow system. so this is for all aspects of life. so then that goes back to Bruce what you were saying the there's that phrase uh, opportunity seeks liquidity. so um, with that you have then the the luck liquidity use control, but then you have to add in the knowledge piece, which is what you were talking about with the ultra wealthy. And how they don't feel that they have to be 100% invested all the time. They're okay being on the sidelines in cash because they know what they're looking for. They have a very clear, defined uh, criteria for an investment Mm -hmm. or an opportunity. And um, which reminds me of the quote from Warren Buffett, the difference between the successful and the ultra successful is that the ultra successful say no almost all the time. And then Steve Jobs Uh, I'm as proud of what we don't do as what we do. So those really reinforce the idea of getting really clear on why and what you're going to invest in and being okay sitting in cash because you're focusing on the right opportunity and that the opportunities, more opportunities will come to you, the more capital that you have. Mm
1: -hmm. Which I love this idea that you'll probably see in your own life, your income, even just whether it's from a job or your business, your income will continue to rise. So wherever you are today, you're gonna be making decisions for your financial life at today's income level. But then as that income increases, you have a choice. And most people say, well, great. Now I can buy a bigger house. Now I can get the boat I wanted. Now I go on vacation. Now I you know, increase my lifestyle. And if you take that back to the um, the game, the cash flow game that Robert Kiyosaki put out, that would be increasing your doodads. <laughs> I love the term on that because it's such a memorable and kind of derogatory and demeaning way of putting this term on. Hey, I can just spend all this extra money that I have when you pull a doodad card in the cash flow game your heart sinks because you, you're you like, oh, I know I'm going to have to pay this money out. You don't really pay attention to, oh, it was for a new TV. Great. Oh, it was for a boat. Oh, great. Those things, yes, maybe they are exciting a little bit, but in the game, the emphasis is on what dollars are now going out of your hands to pay for that. And so when you're in a position of having rising income, the focus that we've had was would be to say, How do we maintain or maybe increase our lifestyle a little bit, but how do we not just absorb all of that additional income by spending more and having an increased lifestyle? How do we make the focus really be on increasing the investable income? How do we make our savings percentage rise with that increase in income, not just our lifestyle expense rise? And so we're going to show you how we're doing that.
2: Oh, uh, Bruce, yeah. So then the other one uh, Bruce had already mentioned safety, liquidity and growth, the idea that you can only maximize two out of three. Uh, while you can get all three in an investment, you cannot maximize all three. Um, So I say that because we are willing to sacrifice a high growth for the maximum amount of safety and liquidity. And the reason for that is um we are confident we we know we can get we can earn a return in two places at the same time and that we can earn a much better return externally outside of our policy i kind of laugh because we had a couple comments lately on a video we did or rachel did a few years ago on uh iuls and how you're you're not in this world no one cares about guarantees and uh and, and i and i think it's i just laugh because uh it's a you know i'm an advisor and uh, I, I've been doing this since 2008 and all my, my clients have done great. And I'm like, okay, that's, well, dude, give, it another Lucas, 20, 30, give it another 20, yeah, 30, <laughs> 40 years and you'll see how, you, how that's working out. So.
3: Yeah, Lucas, I've, I've actually been fortunate enough to speak to different groups and a couple of times it's been to younger advisors. And I always say, you know, you could have been a monkey since 2008 and just pointed at some investments and made money and they don't understand the pain. They're starting to understand the pain in the environment where we are right now. It doesn't mean that IULs won't work out. It certainly doesn't mean that. We don't have a, a crystal ball, but that's the, that's the point. We don't know whether they're going to work out or not. And I think there's just as many people that want certainty that people that don't want certainty. Matter of fact, when we have to do risk profiles as financial advisors, we actually have to take them through very extensive uh questioning now and and pictorial representations and they have to pick which area of risk and most people come out to moderately conservative on their risk profile that i've dealt with so that doesn't sound like people that are willing to just throw away you know um, risk profiles and just say oh i'll accept anything i think most people actually are more conservative
1: Well, You know, I would say even to that, in any married couple, you're going to be making financial decisions together and you're probably not going to feel exactly the same as each other about financial decisions. But let me tell you that even if you're the one who would potentially take a little more risk, I think in our relationship, probably you would be the one who is really desiring more so the certainty and the stability and the control in the future. But I have to tell you that Even if you're the person who says, that doesn't matter to me as as much, it does matter in terms of if you have solid ground beneath your feet, you're going to be able to make different and better and more informed choices about the investments that you do choose because you're always going to have this baseline to come back to. And that security and certainty and stability really gives you so much more leverage in terms of the decisions that you're going to make. And I would love for you to share um, just a little bit of your perspective on the, the economic value of certainty
2: yeah um you know wanted to go back from? go oh. back to the, <clears throat> the iul thing real quick yeah it is something that you know i say this to when i respond to we get a lot of people that comment on that I'll, I'll i mention the idea that you know hey we're not saying that this doesn't work we're saying there are risks and people need to be aware of them and that you know if if it's, it's one of those things. It's kind of a spectrum, right? There, You are taking on more risk. But if you do everything right, and things work out right, yeah, you can come out ahead.
1: You're talking about with an IUL. Yes.
2: Ab- mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, and I, I say that, and I say, you know, if somebody fits the right profile, and they really want it, we have and we will sell these, but we generally prefer the safety and liquidity, and then being able to go out and invest in things we know we can control. Neither way is necessarily wrong. It's just, that's how we are. And that's generally the people that resonate with that message reach out to us, but Which they, they ought- tend to be so one-sided that they, they don't get it. Sometimes people go, oh, okay, yeah, they get it. But a lot of times they're just so narrow-minded that they get lost in that. Well, and
1: I think the important distinction is we see, and again, this is our perspective, but I'm going to share it with you. We see savings as we're putting money in a place where it's safe and it's liquid. Growth is less important because As long as we have the guarantee that we know it's not going to drop in value or we're not going to lose what we felt was that dollar amount in savings, we have more security and stability to make better choices on the investment side. Investments, we distinguish as those things that have the potential for loss. There's going to be a potential higher return. There can be more growth associated. There's maybe less liquidity and less um, safety with an investment. But you're focused more so on the growth so we've just really chosen to prioritize and take first that huge step of saying how can we save and put into that safe and liquid and certain bucket not only for today but also for generations to come and we'll show you that in a second
2: the, the also the the reason i i even brought the whole IUL thing in is because a lot of times the people are in that mindset they only see the stock market they, they only see the one way of investing and focusing on only focusing on rate of return. And so when you kind of step back and you think about it in terms of, um, uh, for somebody who does want to be in control, doesn't want to hand over their money necessarily. The idea of uh, economic value of certainty by Les McGuire, he talks about um, having a guaranteed dollar being worth more than a projected or a non-guaranteed dollar. So a guaranteed dollar today, Is worth more than maybe more in the future and then he asked the question what does the internal rate of return of whole life cash values have to do with maximizing your economic potential so very little the guarantees built in the contract starting with the death benefit but including cash value and premium guarantees as well have a macroeconomic value that does not show up on an illustration or a ledger there's so few moving parts inside the life whole life contract that ownership of the contract provides a level of certainty that cannot be obtained in any other way that certainty in turn allows people to make decisions external to their life insurance but with other resources that they would never have made without having the whole life policy in the first place so again money isn't just math it's not just numbers it's not uh it's there's a lot of it's it's emotional it's spiritual it's a much more complex than just some numbers Uh, On an illustration, or a spreadsheet, or in your bank account. So he gives this analogy: It's like you're driving down a road, a hundred-mile stretch of highway. And if the road is dark and it's snowing and icy, how aggressively do you drive down that road? The possibility of black ice or snow will limit your behavior. Um, Now, in the hindsight, once you've driven down the road, you may realize there was actually no snow, black ice, or black ice, and you could have driven faster safely. But did you actually drive fast or slow? The possibility of problems, limited directions, even though in hindsight, it all may have worked out fine. Um, Contrast this with the same 100-mile stretch of road in the daytime in the middle of summer with no traffic. Does the increased certainty allow you to change the way you drive without fear? Mm -hmm. In the end, the road may have been identical in both scenarios, but your behavior varied greatly based on the degree of certainty you had before you made the drive. And so that's, that, that's kind of stepping back and thinking at it from a principle perspective and putting something in place that provides you that certainty from then, which then allows you to go out and be more aggressive in the other things that you do um, in, in your business or in, in your investing. And so that, that's really the, the value or the principle and the why behind um, why we uh, set up our family bank the way we did.
1: Yeah, so let's go ahead and just kind of walk you through when how we started and we'll zoom quickly up to now. Um, we started again with our economic our, our personal economic picture, our personal financial picture at the time that we first learned about life insurance and our different cash flow situations. So this was December 19th of 2012 was our first whole life insurance policy. We had learned about the value of storing money in whole life insurance. Before that, we were putting it in gold and silver with this great long-term vision, but not recognizing the value of liquidity and the need to potentially access that capital. So we had money in gold. We originally had money in gold and silver, great long-term decision. Then we started a business. We realized we need to use capital now. We need that access and liquidity. And at that time, the value was about in half of what we had been purchasing it for. We lost a ton as we were liquidating and we realized we need a better tool to store cash so that we can access and use it along the way. So we first learned about life insurance, whole life insurance, um, especially designed whole life insurance. And we started a policy with a $10,000 annual premium. So I just wanted to share what we started with in 2012 this is basically almost 10 years ago now. We
2: this is right after you had our first
1: yes. Yeah. and
2: you you had quit working mm-hmm. and we had just started our business. So I mean, a, lot, a lot has changed since then.
1: Sure, yeah.
2: But yeah, that's how we originally set it up.
1: And um so we didn't pay the full premium every year so we're not going to walk through exactly how much premium was in that policy but we did use it for loans. We borrowed against that policy to fund business. We had several loans outstanding. We would pay back some loan. We possibly would take another portion of a loan, but walk forward till now, there's no current outstanding loans on our life insurance policy. Along the way, and I don't remember exactly when, we had a realization that we needed to maximize our human life value as well, which meant we had this policy on Lucas We were using it for infinite banking, meaning we were putting as much cash that we felt was reasonable from our lifestyle or from our income minus our expenses, what that savings portion was, our cash flow that we said, we feel reasonably comfortable that we can make this premium on an ongoing basis and we can commit to this. So that's what we started with about 10 years ago. Then we realized, well, we have that death benefit on Lucas for the whole life policy, but that's certainly not as much as he can get there's no life insurance on me. And I don't know when was that probably about, I mean, I don't have the date, but I want to say like 2015 ish.
2: No, we, well, we had some life insurance on you.
1: I don't know when uh, we started the term,
2: but not long around the same time. Okay. We did the, the whole life, but on me, but then we, but well, we weren't at human life value. So then we okay. upped both mm-hmm. of our, um, our term term to reach human life value at that time. You have
1: which just, I want to make a quick point about human life value. What that means is that if you passed away today or if you were killed inadvertently, accidentally by, I don't know what they call involuntary manslaughter, like somebody accidentally killed you, what would the legal damages be that an attorney would request to cover what you would have made an income at your current income level for the rest of your working years, that that financial contribution you were making to your family from today going forward is now removed and gone from your family, meaning your family is in the negative by this dollar amount. So that's kind of where that is derived from. But we just started thinking, well, if something happened to either one of us, there would be a financial cost. Because one parent cannot single-handedly care for children at home and work full-time. There's gonna be there's gonna to have to have some kind of a, a financial um, contribution to take care of the children and work and be able to continue moving forward. And so that's when we started realizing I also at the time had almost no income, but we recognized that if I was not there, there would still be a tremendous financial. Um, whole in the family. So that's when we had increased our human life value. And then let's continue walking forward. So um, we did a, this is not specifically important for today's conversation. We did another episode on the 1035 exchange of Lucas's whole life insurance policy. The point that I do want to make today is that we moved that $10,000 annual premium policy over to another company and we carried with it all of the cash value that it currently had built up. And then we increased the monthly or the annual premium. So,
2: so we went from 10000
3: to 20000 that we're paying in premium. It's just probably a good time, Rachel, to mention that. That, nor- <clears throat> that normally is not a good thing to yeah. do from one whole life company to another whole life company. But there are specific times that it makes sense. And it, it normally has when there's a significant change in the company, or when there's a significant change in the tax law, or when there's a significant change in the product designs from the companies. So we are we do not recommend people going from one company to a net to another just because they're chasing returns. What well, what you really have to do is a, a really good evaluation of what. Has changed in the economics, in the tax law, or in the company that would cause you to do a 1035 exchange.
1: That's really good, Bruce. And if anyone is interested in why we made that decision and the timing on that, there's a previous episode that we will link this post and this episode to that we talked about why we did a 1035 exchange with that policy. So we're not going to go into details there, but then. We stepped forward and we realized that we had an additional amount of cash flow that we wanted to now put into savings. And this was specifically because income had increased. And now we were in a position of choosing well, we can spend the money, we can increase our lifestyle, but that's not our goal. That's not going to facilitate what we want to create wealth during our lifetime. We want investable capital, we want dollars that we can put to work, and we want wealth that's going to continue in future generations. And so we said, "How can we continue building net investable income, and how can we save this well?" So we went ahead and started another policy. so this was an additional whole life policy that's on me, and that was a premium of thirty thousand per year. so we're going to show you a little bit of the illustration in,
2: in addition to that <clears throat> oh, we increased uh we added an additional two point one million in term to uh reach Rachel's full human life value at that point, based on um, you know income increasing, so that's that's important. But it's not uh, related so much to the banking aspect, but to the overall um, you know what what we're doing and the scenario and the thinking behind. It also allows for quite a a buffer to increase the 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 cash out or the premium we could pay. In the future, could we as we can convert that, so we don't have to go back through underwriting. Or if anything happens to health, we can we know that we can still convert um, that to whole life going forward.
1: That's actually a really important point, and I don't want to dismiss that. One of the really important reasons to have as much term life insurance as you can get today allows you to convert to whole life in the future without having to verify your health status again. So um, huge value in doing that um let's go ahead and just share briefly a little
3: bit of what we did with the premium breakdown is that good Mm -hmm. all right so i'm going to share my screen all right bruce if you can see this then everyone should be able to see this
1: as well can you see that right now good okay all right, so what we did, and um, I'll just show this, and then if you guys would like to comment anything on this, you can. So basically, we said we wanted to put $30,000 per year into a new policy. We broke that down into the base policy, which is about $11,000. let
2: us just say it was it was approximately 40, 40% to base, but then, you know, not exact, but about a 40% to base premium. And there's a little bit to a term, and then covering waiver premium, but then approximately sixty percent was paid up addition. So um again, this is uh, we don't we don't have a particular premium slip that we do for every individual person. Um, this is what we chose to do because <clears throat> we we see interest rates going up, we see future dividends going up, and the way that this particular company works, these particular products that as many do, but not all, not all are the same, the dividends, you'll get the most dividends on the base premium. So we're thinking longer range and wanting the ability to put as more premium in for a longer period of time, which is why we have the 30 year term writer, So
1: I like that you mentioned that. That's actually important to us that we have the ability to put in as much premium as long as possible into a particular policy. And so you may not have that on your radar right now. Sometimes people come to us and they say, How do I fund this as short of a term as possible, which is the opposite of what we were looking at. We said, if we want to continue funding this, how do we guarantee that we have the ability to put in as much ongoing premium for as long as possible? And really, that's because we tremendously see the value of not only increasing a death benefit through this growth, but also increasing our cash value and using this policy. The longer you have a policy in force, the more benefit you're going to have from it.
3: I think the other thing. Oh, go ahead, Bruce. Well, I just think um, to clarify that what you're saying is you you have to follow the MEC laws, Mm -hmm. and so. The, if you put a term rider on it, you actually, the MEC laws are, what, are the modified endowment contract laws, and those are put in by the United States uh, government so that both the, the death benefit and the the contract can grow tax deferred and then access tax free, the death benefit comes tax free. So in order to do that, the government's made a change in the 80s that said, you have to have so much death benefit for how much cash you want to put into it. And there's different corridors. We're not going to get into that. It's a, it's a, it's a fairly complicated calculation. Anyway, the insurance companies always do it. So what you're telling the audience is in order for you to continue to put money into this policy at the rate you want to put the money in, you have to have the death benefit so high. And one of the ways you can do that is add a term writer to it. Some people, as you mentioned, Rachel, say, I want, to only do it for a certain amount of time. So I'm only going to put a seven-year term rider. I'm only going to put a 10-year term rider, or 15, 20, 25, 30. But you've chosen to do a 30 to, to give you the best opportunity to maximize how much cash you can put into the policy over the uh, lifetime of the, of the contract.
1: Yes.
2: yes. Um, and the other thing, without getting too in the on the, down to pennies on premium dollars, but we, we added what's called the waiver of premium rider, and uh, we talked about this in the last one. The ability, the the reason for that is, if something happens to the insured, then uh, to the where you can't work. Um, and there's some limitations on on that definition, but the point being, in you know, in a, in a in a not a worst case scenario, a sense of death, but you're living, but you can't work, then this this plan will still go forward. the The insurance company will pay the premium. And this policy will stay in force so we can have a higher level of certainty that that going back to what I said at the beginning, the economic value of certainty, we have a higher level of certainty that our plan will work in as wide a range of scenarios um, as possible, which is which is going back to the principal level. um, Yes, is that premium reducing the growth in the policy because we're paying some of that premium is going toward a premium? Absolutely. But again, our focus with this tool, this product, is uh, primarily safety and liquidity. And so that then allows us to be more aggressive in, and have peace of mind, but also to be more aggressive in the other aspects of our financial life. So not trying to make this thing do, do everything and getting wrapped around rate of return in a product that is primarily meant to be an emergency opportunity fund.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's actually a couple things that I want to point out here as well. And then, um, Bruce, you can, Bruce and Lucas, you guys can comment on this if you'd like. But there was recently some changes to the 7702 um, tax code. And so, because of those changes, we've seen the guaranteed rate in life insurance, whole life insurance products come down. And I just want to point out that this policy, as well as the other policy that we just 1035 and began the new policy for Lucas, both of those are within that new, lower guaranteed interest rate environment. And so I just wanted to potentially ease your concerns about whole life insurance having, well, if there's a lower interest amount guaranteed, then wouldn't the products not perform as well? We're saying we want the safety and the liquidity and we see the growth for this through dividends in the future, and we value the death benefit and the death benefit growth that we are looking at all of this comprehensively and saying that doesn't necessarily matter to us that the 7702 um, taxes and the, the guarantees inside of the whole life insurance policy have lowered because that means also that there's slightly more cash value for the death benefit because there's less death benefit needed for the same amount of premium. So Bruce, I don't know if there's anything that you would clarify around that. I just wanted to let everyone know that yes, we're doing this in a situation that maybe at first blush would look like, well, that's not as good of an environment as it used to be.
3: Yeah, I have two things to say about this. <clears throat> yes, <clears throat> it's no there's no doubt that the guarantees have gone down. And they've gone down because of the manipulation of the Federal Reserve over interest rates over the years so to be more viable the insurance companies they have gone down however because now it's going to be it's it's actually gone down the the expenses of that guarantee part has also gone down so the insurance company will become more profitable on the dividend end now <clears throat> the dividends are not guaranteed however the companies that we use have paid dividends for at least the companies, the lowest company we've used has paid dividends for at least 117 years straight, even through the Great Depression and the Great Recession. So they're not guaranteed, but they're highly probable. I always tell people, I think they're more highly probable. Prob- well, I know they're more highly probable than an index because everybody always talks about an index being the way to invest. Well, indexes do not always go up. Sometimes they're just flat. So that means that would be the same as not paying a dividend in that particular year on the guarantee, so guarantees have gone down, but that means the expenses of the company have gone down, so that means the dividends should be able to be paid even more um, thoughtfully or i have to I have to be careful not to use the word guarantee, but dividend more likely going mm-hmm. into the future because of the lower the lower um, expenses to the company
2: and I mean I think it's important too because there's a lot of people uh, the last few half of last year or so, there's a lot of um, fear being used to push people to get a policy now before the new ones come out. Right, and um, these are also a lot of times the same people that use um, they'll do videos or send out information saying, "Hey, look, I design policies better than than anyone else. I'll get you the most cash value." And then they'll use illustrations even to try to say, "Look at, look at, uh, you're getting ripped off by this other person." And um, they're using these you know projections. And or uh, isolating it all on rate of return, not focusing on there could be a lot of other reasons to design policy a whole lot of wide range of ways and getting hyper focused on rate of return and um, and or slightly more cash value in the first so many years um, so it, it, it is important I think to to highlight that
1: yeah and what's interesting as well is as Lucas mentioned that I just wanted to reiterate if interest rates are going up, that means we anticipate that there would be higher growth through dividends in an increasing interest rate environment, which then means if we know that more dividends are paid on the base premium than on the paid up addition, then we're opening the door for potentially higher future growth inside of the policy in a rising interest rate environment so just some interesting things to note um a few other things i wanted to point out here is we backdated this policy to save age what that means is i don't know when did we pay our first premium do you know the date i didn't look at the date that it was
2: in um, i think it was last month i believe but it just because it took quite a while again well so underwriting process and, and everything did, yeah. but it, it officially is a would be as of November. of.
1: Yes. So my birthday is November 22nd, and I think we backdated to November 21st or something like yep. that so that we backdated the policy to the day before my birthday because you have a six-month window that you can do that. And the reason is multiple multiple pieces I'll just bring up here. That means that our first premium we paid in May is applied back to November, meaning our next premium, our next year's premium is going to be due in about six months from now which you could say, well, why would you want to do that? You're going to have two premiums due in the first year. We were looking at how can we pay in as much premium into this policy as possible. So that was advantageous for us rather than a disadvantage. Um, Also, just because my age was one year younger when we started the policy, the cost of insurance is slightly less. So you just have some additional advantages in terms of the growth. And then... I also wanted to point out, sometimes people will say, you want a small base as possible because that's the guaranteed amount of the premium. What if you come into a hard year and you can't pay your full premium? You want a lesser commitment. Yes, it is a higher commitment that we have 40% of this, this policy is a required payment for years going forward. But we were also okay with that, knowing that this was accomplishing the goals that we have for our future.
3: Yeah. And and if you understand how these contracts work, and a lot of people that say that don't understand how the contracts work, you can actually surrender values to actually pay for your base premium. Mm-hmm. So you can surrender LPUAs, the, the level paid up uh, additions riders on these, that would be the equivalent to whatever your base premium is, which means you boosted up the death benefit the year you paid the full premiums. Now, if you just de- if you just lower the ba- the death benefit by the same amount that the base would have would or would have be paid for, then you don't have to make the 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 uh, premium payment that particular year. Or you can actually you can actually uh, pay from funds and your cash value if you'd like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a and another another thing you can do is actually take the dividend and apply it to the premium instead of applying it to the cash value and, and uh, the dividend may not be enough to, to cover the entire base, but then you can, so there's all kinds of different ways that these are very, very flexible. And that's why you need to sit down every year and review, which is what we do with our clients to see, you know, if they have come into a financial situation that needs them to, to change the way they're paying their premium that particular year. The other thing, you, we just did this with a client the other day. You can change your mode of premium.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
3: you know, instead of paying 30,000 annually, oh, I can't, I don't have all the 30,000 right now. I'm going to pay, um, uh, semi-annually or quarterly or monthly. And then, oh, I come into cash. I can then catch up and just pay it again. There's all kinds of flexibility. Yeah. We, we
2: um, we've actually did that, I was gonna say that in again. our first policy. Mm-hmm. We, um, one year took a loan. And it would just auto the, the company t- did it for us to take a loan, so our cash value technically, you know, available cash value went was less. went down. But then when it, they uh, immediately they applied the premium, and it's almost it was as if nothing right. happened. Or right. depending on this, how long you've had the policy, you actually have more more cash value. Right. You do you have a loan a, a, attached to it, but you're you're still available cash value can still increase. And um, and obviously that's not something you would want to do forever. But the idea that um, you have that flexibility. In there,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. I think these are super good points, especially if you're considering adding an additional policy. These are all questions that are going to be on your mind. What if I come into a hard year and I can't pay the premium? How much do I want to fund? What do how how do I want to design it? Who do I want to insure? These are all questions. So um, I'm going to say as well. So the initial face amount, the starting death benefit on this new policy for me was two hundred seventy-eight thousand, approximately, and um, we started the whole life because we wanted to have an additional place to store cash. It also provided a death benefit, which is a rising death benefit as the policy is designed to continue to have um, dividends, purchase more paid up additions inside the policy. We have a rising death benefit over time, but we still wanted to increase the death benefit today to match up the human life value. So I just well, want to show you. It
2: was more than that. You're just talking about the, the base. There oh. was the term writer which gets added to that. There's also the um paid up additions, what that buys in terms of death benefit. So
3: Exactly at the end the, at the end of the first year it's five hundred and seventy-four thousand dollars. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay.
2: So the initial, but if you mm-hmm. go out even like t- ten within ten years it'll be more it'll more than double uh in death benefit. So each year it's going up um probably over fifty thousand, sixty thousand a year. Every year it's increasing the death benefit. So mm-hmm
1: yes okay so we're not going to show you too much of those numbers but what i do want to show you is the end result so um not the end result but the current status of how our family bank stands and so i'm going to share screen again and so lucas has worked out this excel spreadsheet kind of showing the the current status of our family bank and so this is values as of today that i think are really valuable to for you to see for multiple reasons so our total whole life premium that we've paid in our lifetime into whole life policies is this first number here, the 110,673. And that oh, and is
2: hold on with the premium, I think it'd be important to point out. So we, we started with 10,000 a year. Then when we added the, the or got the new policy on me, we went to 20,000 a year. Then we did 30,000 on you. So now we're at 50,000 a year in whole life premium that will start going forward from this year forward. You paying. So the, the, numbers will increase at a much faster pace now
1: yes yes and so again if you're in a situation where you say i want to do this but i am not there yet financially start where you're at um we did 10 years ago and i'm so thankful we did and in fact i look back and i think we could have rearranged so many things in our financial life to have started at least five years before that and have put far more in but you know all of us hindsight is twenty twenty. so um then where we stand right now so the total whole life death benefit was 1.4
2: yeah 1.4
1: million then we also have term life insurance because we needed to increase and get up to our human life value so this is total death benefit i'll just say basically close to 7 million so 6.9 million between the two of us in our life we have not yet put any policies on the kids so this is just on lucas and i then this number is important to look at as well. So because not all of our policies are the same age in terms of how long they've been in force, this number is not reflective of any one particular policy, but the combined two policies, which we're saying now of the total that we've paid in in premium, 75% of those dollars that we've paid in in premium are available to us in cash value. So that's a number derived from we've paid in a total of 110,000 in premium and current cash value available is about 83, almost 84,000. So that percentage is going to continue inc- to increase over time and then will flop. <laughs> the numbers will swap so that there will be more total cash value available than we've paid in, in premium. And I don't know if we look at our whole banking system with both policies, I don't know what year that is. but. Um, that's one of the reasons why we continue to see the value of putting so much premium in to a policy and then recognizing that we're getting this tremendous advantage on the cash value side and supplementing with the the term to get the death benefit. And honestly, just as we were coming into this conversation, I said to Lucas, I was like, it's not really that important to show what our death benefit numbers are. And he said, well, why not? Because it's really important. And it's important for you, if you're watching this, to realize that Your human life value, A, is probably far higher than you think that it is. And B, it's really important to make sure that you do have that full human life value. I mean, our circumstance was probably and hopefully far more severe and unique than any one of you will ever face. But I had a near death experience about three years ago. And because of that, we were looking at the potential of Lucas having to use the life insurance that was in force on my life. And it gave us a tremendous gratitude that we had taken into consideration and we had weighed and we had paid for term life insurance up to my full human life value so that that would have paid out if i was no longer
2: here well if you walk this out say <laughs> 10 years out the the percentage of premium assuming we don't change or add policies right but that for for our entire system we should have over 100 percent of the so if you go back uh, mm-hmm. are you still showing it nope i can go back So the total cash value available will be larger than the premium, whole life premium paid. And our death benefit, whatever that number is in the future, will have more cash value than we paid and our death benefit will be much larger. It'll probably be well over 10 million um, in death benefit going, say, 10 years out in the future. And we'll probably have, you know, we'll have considerable more cash value, but also more cash value than we paid. And so then you have to think about, well, then how much did that death benefit actually cost me uh, I have more in death benefit than i than than we've paid or we I mean more cash value than we've paid mm-hmm. in premium
1: and more death and than more we paid death
2: benefit from. so uh,
1: Which even point, when our term policies our thirty year term policies fall off, and even when our thirty year term riders inside the whole life insurance policy fall off the the rise in death benefit is gonna—I mean, I don't know if it's gonna completely compensate for that full amount, but we're gonna continue to see a rise in a death benefit, which is a tremendous value to our our personal family bank. Well, and, I
2: was more hitting at the, at the cost. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, if you stick with this, you could make the case that the the cost for whole life is actually less than the cost for term. Yeah. Um, and the person with the term policy is gonna get to the end of the thirty years, and if they let it lapse. And the person who has the policy and wisely stewarded the cash value and uh sees the right opportunities will have far outperformed
1: mm-hmm. so
2: it's thinking long range it's easy in the short term to go oh uh i can pay less in premium now today and just get this death benefit and then you're going to term yeah. Yeah. yeah but again that's that's where money money is much more than numbers it's emotional it's spiritual it, it encompasses like who we are as humans Uh, It is much more complex than just numbers on a a spreadsheet.
1: You know, the last thing I want to share on this, and I think we could probably keep talking for quite some time. I know we have uh, a call to jump off for. So what I want to say is our goal is to continue to increase and add policies to our family banking system. And ultimately, we're not just thinking about what happens during our lifetime, because we know that at some point, Our lives are going to lift off from this earth and we are going to be no more. And hopefully, that's going to be 70 plus years from now. And when it does, the death benefit will pay out and that will be paid eventually to our children. And then we have directed within our trust and our memorandum of trust that we desire to have that death benefit purchase as much whole life insurance on that next generation as possible. And what I want to show you that's that is possible if you think long term as as long as possible is that if you start a family banking system now you'll always have more death benefit than you've paid in if that death benefit deposits into generation 2 your generation 1 then generation 2 has more capital to seed a larger family banking system with and they have more capital to put in for a higher and even higher than what they paid death benefit for generation three to purchase more capital to seed their family banking system. And if you think generationally, there's just so much capability. And we see this not as only a place to store cash and keep it sitting there, but we see it as an opportunity to mentor and grow our kids, to have people in our family, including our children, request loans from the family bank, And for us to say, this is a worthy loan or not a worthy loan. And we're going to provide you this loan because we think your likelihood of repaying this loan is high. Maybe it's for college. Maybe it's for buying their first rental property. Maybe it's their fifth rental property. And we want to be in a position where we're continuing to provide capital to the family so the family can continue growing wealth. And this is one of the foundational tools to do it. It's not the only tool. It is a foundation for building that system. Is there anything else
2: you want to add before we wrap up? That's, uh, that's good. I mean, I think there's a, a as we continue to do updates on this, we can go more into family banking and how that can be used for uh, thinking when you really start to think long range and future generations and training the next generation. But yeah, that's a great point.
1: All right, well, thank you for being with us today. I hope this was helpful to you as you're making decisions on growing your own capital, thinking long range, thinking generational wealth in your family and we invite your questions you can post them on this video wherever you find it youtube facebook twitter um i'm forgetting linkedin um you can post your questions there please subscribe please like and rate and review this show if you're finding us on apple Podcasts. you can also email us at hello at bmoneyadvantage.com and even better if you said I see something in this that I want to implement in my own life, whether you're starting a first or a 25th policy. I don't know if we've had anyone with 25 policies, Bruce, but um, whichever area of this spectrum you're in, we would love to be a resource for you. You can book a call with our advisor team, go to themoneyadvantage.com. There's a calendar button right in the middle of the front homepage. And that will take you to our calendar where you can get started figuring out exactly how to design your policies to create a family banking system, and make your money work for you so that you can be as efficient and effective at building generational wealth. We'll see you next time. Oh, I almost forgot. In closing, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside.
0: Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com.